In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. How many of you come to church hoping to hear about Deuteronomy? (laughs) Oh, some of you do. Well, good for you. We are reading our way through the Bible in a year. For those of you that have been here before, there uh, there are schedules in the back. We are working our way through the Bible this year, and I'm preaching wherever we're at. And I have to admit, preaching on Deuteronomy is a daunting task. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's been a good discipline for me. I've had to get in there and figure out. God put Deuteronomy in the Bible for a reason, right? <laughs> so I figured, you know, my job is to figure out what some of that might be. Because I've got to talk about it now. And it's been good. It's been good that I've had to get in there and look at some of the, the parts of Scripture that we don't spend very much time in. Imagine the scene of when Deuteronomy must have taken place, or when it did take place. Deuteronomy, I imagine Moses, who wrote Deuteronomy, I imagine him white hair, a flowing white beard, and he has, he's standing tottering on a rock, supported on two sides by his assistants, Caleb and Joshua. And he's standing up before the people to talk to the people. And his voice probably wasn't quite as strong as it once had been. And he wasn't a public speaker in the, begin- in the first place anyway. You remember him complaining to God, send somebody else, I can't talk. Uh, we, we think he must have had a stuttering problem or something like that. Well, anyway, he had been speaking for the, to these people for the past 40 years now, and so they knew what to expect. It's very likely that not even all of them liked him very much. But when Moses spoke... They listened. They absolutely listened. They stationed shouters throughout the crowd. This was a huge group of people, over a million probably. They stationed shouters around so that Moses' words could be echoed throughout the crowd. And I wonder about that a little bit. You ever play that game, telephone? But at least they had some checks and balances. They weren't whispering it, you know. Somebody else could correct them, I suppose. But anyway, you had to, they didn't have microphones, and so they had to project this to the larger Uh, group out there. Now, scribes were also on hand to record every word for posterity. That's where the book of Deuteronomy came from. The people had a feeling that this was going to be one of Moses' last speeches, one of his most important speeches. I mean, he was getting so old, so feeble, he couldn't go on too much longer. And Moses, I think, probably knew that this was his final speech to the people. And he had a lot to say. This had not been an easy 40 years for Moses. Remember, Moses should have been in the promised land 40 years before, along with his assistants, Caleb and Joshua. These were the people who had the faith in God that they could have gone up and possessed the promised land 40 years before. But they had to go back with all of the unfaithful people and spend 40 years in the desert for reasons that weren't their own. Because of other people's unfaithfulness, they ended up spending... So Moses had some things to say to the people. 
Not only that, he was pretty upset that God had told him he couldn't go back to the land of Canaan or couldn't go over to see it because of a mistake he had made during that 40 years. The way of that 40 years was strewn with complaints and rebellions and, and quarrels and even bodies. Thousands and thousands of people had died over that course of that 40 years. A lot of them died of natural causes. A lot of them died as a direct result or command of God. This had not been an easy 40 years. But finally, it was time for them to have a second chance at the promised land. A second chance to go up to Canaan and possess this beautiful land that God had promised to give them back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this time they would not make the mistake that their forebears had made. They would trust God to give them this land, even though the people there were bigger and stronger than they were. And so Moses begins to speak Deuteronomy to the people. And at first he reviews their history so far and the way that God has led them and how patient God has been with them over this past 40 years, despite their constant rebellion over and over again. And then go, Moses goes on to remind them in great detail of the, of the contract God had made with his people, this covenant that he had made with his people. And he outlined again the, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience that would fall upon the people. This is the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' last address to the people before his death. And we know that um, last words are something people listen to, aren't they? Because often they're profound. And this was certainly the case with Moses. Now, the book of Deuteronomy, just for interest's sake, is not known as Deuteronomy to the Jews. It is known by the name, These Are the Words. They named the books by the first words that opened the book. And that's how this, the Deuteronomy starts. This is, these are the words. It also has a couple of other names. It's also known as the book of admonitions. It's also known as a copy of the law. Interestingly enough, this comes from Deuteronomy 17 18, where God commanded any king that was ever to rule over Israel, they were to write out in their own handwriting the entire law for themselves. Kind of an interesting thing to do. So sometimes it's called a copy of the law. I don't know how many of the kings of Israel actually did this uh, or not. I'm sure, I'm sure that Solomon did. I'm pretty sure that, that I had, I've read that he had done it. But, but this covenant treaty that Moses was talking about was incredibly important to God. We see that in here. Because it was God's means of salvation for his people. Through, uh, God did everything through Moses, everything he could do to stress the importance to his people about this covenant, this treaty, this deal that he was making with his people. And because soon they were going to cross over into the promised land. And when that happened, God would not be as visibly present among his people as he had been before. In the desert, everyone was very aware of God's presence. You remember the stories, right? God was there as a pillar of cloud during the day. He was a pillar of fire during the night. People could see this. God sent food, miraculously rained it down from the sky every single day for 40 years. He brought water out of places that water shouldn't have been, out of a rock. Constantly, people were in contact with this God. God even spoke directly with his people once or twice, 
And he often spoke with his people through Moses over and over again. The people were constantly aware of this God. There was not any opportunity for them to forget about this God. But now it was time for them to grow up a little bit. Have you ever heard or ever felt, you know, why doesn't God talk to us the way he did back then? You have to remember that even back then there came a time where God didn't work that way even with them. It was time for them to grow up. It was time for them to spiritually mature a little bit. It was time for God to cut the apron strings and hand them the car keys as they went out to carve a new existence in Canaan. They had to learn to trust and to rely and to build a relationship with an invisible God. They had to learn how to hear a silent God. This all happened long before us. And even as God moved his people into a deeper level of spirituality, he warned them over and over again the dangers involved with doing it. He warned them of the, the, the new freedom that they were going to have in the promised land. They were not to forget the deal that God had made with them to obey his laws. Deuteronomy 8.11, which we just read this morning. Deuteronomy 8.11. And we'll read through on to verse 14. God says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied... When you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, was God saying any of these things were bad? No, he was just saying that when these things happen, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of your slavery, of all of the possible insults that we humans can heap upon God, I get the feeling from Deuteronomy, forgetting him is one of the worst. God doesn't like to be forgotten. I have a feeling, I mean, from what I see here, he would rather we be angry with him than forget about him. He would rather we have a negative relationship than an indifferent relationship. Moses warned the people not not to forget God when they got comfortable. He was saying, when you get comfortable, don't forget about me. And I think Moses recognized his words for what they were. They weren't just warnings, they were prophecy. This is what was going to happen in the future, and Moses knew it. It's a strange thing, but hardship and danger and persecution and poverty are never so dangerous to spirituality as comfort and ease, and wealth, and satisfaction. Those things are what are dangerous. When everything is going well, personal, personal spirituality is in the most danger at those times. Success is more dangerous to the Christian than failure. Because when we are successful, we tend towards self-reliance. When we don't need anything, we tend to include God in the definition of anything. Whether we would say it in those words or not, it's what actually happens. 
So Moses stresses over and over again how intentional God's people have to be in, in recounting the mighty acts of God. They saw the way he worked to remember those things and to impress his laws upon their hearts and the souls of their children even so that they would never forget. Read this verse with me. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Do you remember that? Have you heard that somewhere else before? Who said those words? Jesus did. He was quoting Deuteronomy. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. How many of you try to instruct your children in the law of God like that? God wanted his people to memorize his, not just memorize. God wanted his people to surround themselves with his laws. Why? What is God's law? God's law is a reflection of his character, isn't it? God's law is a reflection of his character. He wanted them to be familiar with it because it was the terms of the contract. The deal God had made with his people. And that deal included both blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. God pleads with his people to obey because he wants to bless not to curse. But when God enters into a covenant with someone, he will uphold his end of the bargain. If he has promised blessings for obedience, then he will bless for obedience. If he has promised curses for disobedience, then he will give curses for disobedience. God does do what he says that he will do. So God pleads with his people to obey because God wants to give blessings rather than curses, right? He really wants to, but he has to uphold the contract. The contract itself was merciful. The very fact that he gave it to them. You see, God had found a solution to the crisis of sin in Jesus Christ. He had found that. By giving up the Creator to die in behalf of the creation, God had found a way to save his people. And he could now form a contract with his people while still being merciful and just at the same time. This covenant was a second chance for planet Earth. In Jesus, God had exploited a legal loophole in the law. The law said the wages of sin is death. God found a way to save by giving up Jesus. Now, exploiting this loophole cost God dearly, didn't it? It cost God dearly, but he was willing to do it because of his great love for us. And so then, he laid out the parameters of the deal. So what was the deal? Put simply, the parameters of the deal were, obey the law, and you will live. Disobey the law, and you will die. Obey and live, disobey and die. That's just a simply, put simply, that was the parameters of the contract. If they would obey... As it says um, in Deuteronomy 6.25, it would be credited to them as righteousness. A legal document. If you will obey, 
it will be your righteousness. Now, this is going to be key here in a minute. But not only was obedience counted as their righteousness, there were other benefits too. There were the blessings. And these blessings were nothing to sneeze at. Look at it in uh, Deuteronomy 7.11. These were pretty good blessings. 7.11. Therefore, take care to follow the commands and decrees and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you, as he swore to his forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. Number one. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and the land that he swore to his forefather, your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men and women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep from you, will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but will inflict them on those who hate you. These blessings were amazing. He promised to increase their numbers, to bless them with healthy children, that no one would be childless, but that he would help the crops grow and the animals reproduce well, and they would be free of disease. Now think about this. These were huge issues back then. Being strong in number meant security, right? You had to defend yourselves back then. Being childless was the ultimate in disgrace. Having many children was the ultimate in blessing. That's the way it was then. The highest honor to have many children. A high infant mortality rates were just a, a, a sad fact of life back then. Flocks and herds were the money of the day. That was their wealth and prosperity. Good, consistent crops meant a life of ease, of plenty. You know, having enough food on the table to eat. And good health? What else could people ask for? Health, security, honor, and wealth. God had covered it all. Are those things that we still look for today? Absolutely they are. God said, you do this for me, and I will do all of this for you. Obey my laws, and I will do all of this for you. Now, were the laws that God had given them difficult? Some people think they are. But if you really think about it, most of the Ten Commandments are still universally accepted today, Christian or non-Christian. I can't think of very many religions that say, you know, it's great to commit adultery or that it's great to lie. No. The, for the most part, the Ten Commandments are still universally accepted worldwide, no matter Christian or not. The rest of the laws summarized in Deuteronomy really are just the basics of things that would help Israel survive as a nation. They weren't difficult things. Our tax code makes this contract look like nothing. God left tremendous room for flexibility in life there. And yet Moses foretold the future of God's people that they would not keep his laws. That they wouldn't do it. They would forget God and go their own way in the curses of famine and disease and war and childlessness and starvation and all of these things would fall upon them. And we know that it happened. The stories are there. We know what happened? God's people got comfortable. And they forgot about God just as God warned them that they would. So, still, why am I dwelling on all of this? How important is this to us today? I mean, we don't need to worry about the Old Covenant. You've heard of it called that, right? The Old Covenant. We don't need to worry about the Old Covenant anymore because Jesus said in Luke 2, uh, 22, 20, a new covenant I give you, Right? It's all gone. It's all thrown out. 
Why even read the old contract anymore? Why not throw out the old law and start with the new? Good question. When God established what we now call the old covenant in Sinai, in the wilderness, did he introduce anything to the people that was new to them? For the most part, no. He added some ceremonial laws and some some civil laws to guide them as a nation because they were a new nation and they needed some laws. But for the most part, he did not introduce anything new. The Ten Commandments, tithing, offerings, sacrifices, all of those basics, they had been put in place right at the beginning of of the world, right after sin. All of those things were already there. They knew about these things. This was not new stuff to them. When Jesus promised a new covenant, he did not throw out the old law just as he didn't bring in a new one at that time. He didn't throw it out to bring in something completely different. In fact, he addressed the very question in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, capital L. Or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, listen to this, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Until how much is accomplished? Everything is accomplished. Jesus said that the time had come to fulfill the law. I have come to fulfill the law. And if you're willing to trace this, this is a fascinating study, but it's not a short one. If you're willing to trace this, you can see where everywhere that the nation of Israel had failed to keep the terms of the contract, Jesus succeeded. Jesus relived Israel's history. In every place that they had failed, he succeeded in keeping the old covenant. He not only became the substitute for us personally, so that we would not have to die, but he actually fulfilled the terms of the contract for us. Jesus became Israel. Jesus became Israel. That's why Paul was able to say in Galatians 3 that there are no longer Jews or Greeks, and so on. That we are all children of Abraham, we are all Israel in Jesus Christ. Makes sense, doesn't it? So when he gives us this new covenant that he spoke of, which he did say, what do you think are the terms of that covenant? They're essentially the same. Obey and live, disobey and die. But pastor, that's legalism. Right? No, it's not. Jesus said that he gave us a new covenant. We must still keep the law because God's law, we just said, is what? A reflection of God's character. Does God change? He says he does not. The law is still an integral part of the new covenant. But if the terms are essentially the same, what's new about it? And I'm greatly oversimplifying by not going into the details of the ceremony and civil laws. I'm not, you know, that's a a long discussion which are no longer part of the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. But as I understand it, the primary thing that makes the New Covenant new is the administration of the covenant, the way that it works. We no longer gain our salvation through the death of a lamb. We gain our salvation by accepting the blood 
the death of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That's what's new. The old sacrificial system was done away with. The symbols were exchanged for reality. And in so doing, the reasons for keeping God's law have also changed. This is what's really key in this, I think. In the desert, they were to keep the law, the terms of the contract, for legal reasons, right? Because it would be counted to them as righteousness. Keeping the law is no longer credited to us as righteousness. That is legalism. The nation had failed to fulfill the legalistic part of the law. Thankfully, Jesus did not. Jesus became Israel. He fulfilled the legalistic part of the law. And under the new contract, we do not keep the law to gain righteousness. We do not keep the law to gain salvation. Under the new contract, we keep the law out of love for God. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. It's pretty clear, isn't it? If you love me, you will obey my command. I'm inclined to think that this covenant thing has come full circle. Adam and Eve were asked to obey in Eden, weren't they? Why? To gain salvation? No, there was no sin. Out of love. Full circle. Obedience is still important to God, but not because it can save us. Thankfully, Jesus took care of that part, which we failed to do. However, if we take what Jesus said about obeying at face value, which we should, then the law still governs us. And I would dare say that the terms of the contract, as far as the blessings and the curses, are probably still quite a bit in effect. Though they, I hope, would be adapted to our time and situation. By obeying, I don't want to come home to a whole yard full of cows or a dozen children. That's not what we need these days. But I do expect God that will bless me in the terms of my life today. Of honor, of security, of wealth, those different things. Now, it may not be fabulously wealthy, but I don't want. I have food on the table. People really get excited about the story of Exodus, right? Look at the way God works. He parts a red, the Red Sea so that his people can walk across. He strikes a rock and water comes out of it. He sends food down from heaven. This is really incredible stuff, the book of Exodus, because people understand that the book of Exodus, this Exodus from, from slavery in Egypt, is a parallel to our lives, right? The way that God gives us a personal Exodus out of our life of slavery to sin, right? They understand that parallel, though. That, that God works miracles to rescue us from where we are, to bring us to this promised land. They understand that. And it's a wonderful thing to see how God works powerfully in our own personal exodus, right? That is a great thing. But in our excitement over Exodus, we forget Deuteronomy. Please don't read Exodus without reading Deuteronomy. Because when God brings us out, He makes a deal with us. To obey and to be blessed and to live or to disobey, be cursed, and to die. 
We cannot throw out the law of God in favor of the spirit of the law. Have you heard that? Very popular teaching today. I now obey the spirit of the law. That would be like me saying, because those two things can't be separated when you think about it. That would be like me saying to a police officer, I'm sorry, officer, that I was driving down the left-hand side of the road. You see, I no longer keep the letter of the law. There were fewer cars on the left side of the road than the right, and so it was safer on the left. That's the spirit of the law, officer. Is the officer going to take that? Of course not. The spirit of the law and the letter of the law cannot be ripped apart. We cannot throw out the law of God in favor of the spirit of the law, for in reality, those two cannot be separated. But somebody will say quickly, Pastor, what about Romans 7, 6? Listen to this. You're going to think I'm dead wrong here, right? But now, by dying to once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. Hmm. And not the old way of the written code. That sounds like a direct contradiction to what I just said, doesn't it? But I would argue that it's not only not a contradiction, but it's actually a confirmation. It confirms rather than contradicts. We have been released from the legalistic binding of the law. Keeping the law is no longer counted as our righteousness. What's counted as our righteousness? Jesus is. Jesus, in our behalf, fulfilled the legal requirements of the law that we could not. Our way to salvation is no longer the written code. Our way to salvation is through Jesus. But can we claim to accept Jesus if we do not love him? Somebody say something. Can we claim to accept Jesus if we don't love him? No. Can we love Jesus without obeying him? He said no. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Jesus, in resisting Satan in the, in the desert during his 40 days fasting, you remember that? He had three different temptations that, were, that are spoken of, right? And every time he said, it is written, you know where those quotes came from? Deuteronomy. Jesus understood the importance of God's law, and he made sure that it was written upon his own heart as he asks, asks us to do. Only we don't order to do it in order to gain salvation. But we do it out of love for Jesus. The terms, looking at it from a simplistic point of view, are essentially the same. Obey and live, disobey and die. The motivations for keeping it are new. Obedience for salvation's sake is correctly called legalism. Obedience for love's sake is correctly called accepting Jesus. You cannot accept Jesus without loving him. You cannot love him without obeying him. And he pointed us to the law of God in the Old Testament for our direction. Indeed, he did not abolish the law. In fact, he expanded it, didn't he? He elevated anger to the level of murder. He elevated lust to the level of adultery. He didn't lift from us the requirement of obedience. He deepened the definition of obedience. Spiritual maturity here, right? What he lifted from us, thank God, was the pressure to perform to save our lives. That's what he lifted from us. 
Now we may rest in the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus because he accomplished that for us where we could not. Now we must accept him by living as he commanded without thought to our salvation. And this is where most of us fall down. We must now obey him without thought to our salvation, but with thoughts for him. So, have you ever wondered if you are a legalist? And if you haven't, I hope you will. I think we should all wonder that sometime because it might lead to a little bit of soul searching. And legalism is not a hard thing to see if you're willing to see it. All you have to do is ask yourself one simple question. The next time you notice yourself obeying reluctantly, ask why. Ask yourself, why did I just obey? Did I just obey because secretly inside I'm a little bit afraid of losing my salvation? Or did I obey obey because I really want to because I love Jesus so much? See the difference there? I think of all of us, we're truthful. We would have to admit that we are a little bit legalistic. But also that we are a little bit in love with Jesus. We are on a journey getting closer to Jesus. And part of that journey is learning how to not live for our own salvation. Not obey for our own salvation. But to obey in the way of the new covenant. To obey in the way of the Spirit. To obey in the way of wanting to out of love rather than fearing the consequences of not. Today, maybe we could make a little covenant of our own. And maybe during prayer, I would like, uh, if you're willing to, that maybe you would raise your hands with me. And that we would say, Lord, I want to accept you. I want to love you, but frankly, I have to admit, I don't know how. If you're like me, I obey often because I have to, not because I want to. Because I'm afraid of what might happen if I don't. I'm too preoccupied with myself to really know how to let go. And so would you say with me maybe, Lord, take control of my life. Work in me to do what I can't do for myself. I don't know how to get rid of it. Teach me to love you so much that obeying you will be my greatest joy. If you would, just bow your heads and and raise your hands with me to say this. Lord. Lord God, we are weak. We look for excuses not to obey because we think our own way is better or more fun or, or, or easier or something. But Lord, you have promised us such incredible blessings if we will obey. But Lord, we forget that we don't have to obey to be saved. You've done that for us. We need to learn to obey out of pure love and gratitude for what you've done for us. Teach us, Lord, to obey that way. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.
Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program, and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.